You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. We are in Acts 16 this morning. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, page 924 is where that begins. We have... uh, this Sunday and next Sunday uh, in the book of Acts, and then we're going to take a summer break and do a summer in the Psalms, and then we'll come back to the book of Acts and finish it out uh, starting in September. So just two weeks left in Acts for this half-ish of the book. Uh, But as we celebrate Pentecost today, you heard Mallory draw our attention to that, uh, that God the Father and God the Son sent God the Spirit to empower the church we get to, in Acts chapter 16, see that play out, see what that actually looks like in the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul writes, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And what he's saying there, in other words, is that the Spirit of God who gives life, who applies Jesus' salvation to us, who makes salvation count on our behalf, who brings us out of sin and death. Let us also follow the Spirit. He is the leader. Let us get in line behind the Spirit and follow Him. And Paul's own life and his missionary journeys in particular are an example of what that looks like. So listen for it as we explore Acts 16 this morning. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers and sisters at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. 
Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, if you've been with us in the book of Acts, you might be thinking, that won't last very long. We know what happens when people get thrown in prison in the book of Acts. So verse 25, about midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to you, sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who were Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers and the sisters, they encouraged them and departed. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. Grant us, Lord, in these moments together this morning, your spirit of wisdom and insight, your spirit of counsel and power, your spirit of knowledge and of the fear of you. Make us quick in our understanding, make us true in our judgment, that today we would hear your word and believe your word and practice your word according to the example of Jesus Christ and by his grace alone we pray. Amen. The historian and theologian named F.F. F. Bruce writes that Paul's journeys display, quote, an extraordinary combination of strategic planning and keen sensitiveness to the guidance of the Spirit of God. So there's planning and there's intentionality to Paul's journeys, but there's also a very evident dependence upon the Spirit. And three ways we see that play out in Acts chapter 16. Paul and his traveling companions keep in step with the Holy Spirit's direction, discernment, and design. Direction, discernment, and design. Direction, where to go. Discernment, what to do, particularly in varied circumstances. 
And then the Spirit's design, how the Spirit himself is at work in the midst of all of this. So first, the Spirit's direction. Direction. After Paul and Barnabas part ways, we saw that at the end of Acts 15, Paul takes Silas and he begins what we now refer to as his second missionary journey. He starts that journey by returning to some of the same cities that he visited on the first journey, including Derby and Iconium and Lystra. Now, if you were with us a couple weeks ago in Acts 14, you might recall Lystra is the place where he was nearly stoned to death. He was dragged outside of the city and, and stoned. But now he's courageously returning to both strengthen the church that he left behind as well as help it continue to, to grow. And it's there in Lystra that he meets Timothy, a really significant character, as we'll see for the rest of the, the New Testament, a man who eventually becomes Paul's own protege and spiritual son. Timothy and his mother became Christians either the, at the end of, of Paul's missionary visit, the first one, or maybe sometime after that. But Paul now recruits him to be the third member of this traveling team of missionaries. Timothy's going to join Paul and Silas. They're going to travel. Before they depart, though, as we read, he has Timothy circumcised. And if you've been reading with us, especially if you were here last week for Acts 15, you're like, wait, what? What? Didn't Paul just make a huge deal about circumcision not being necessary? So why is he now requiring days later, maybe a couple months later, Timothy to be circumcised? We're going to come back to that in just a minute when we talk about discernment. But this three-person team now keeps moving northwest through these regions of Phrygia and Galatia. And it's here, particularly in verses 6 and 7, that we see the Spirit's direction. So verse 6, having been forbidden by the Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And then verse 7, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So two prohibitions... And then, verse 9, a positive calling, an urging, what's known as the Macedonian call. Paul has this vision in the night of a man from Macedonia saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Paul's original plan on this missionary journey was apparently to get to Ephesus. And that makes a lot of sense. Ephesus is a, is a central hub in this region. Uh, it's a major port city. It's a place of strategic influence. It's the gateway to the western half of the Mediterranean. Ephesus sits on the eastern shore of the Aegean Sea. Macedonia, which is northern Greece, is on the west shore of the Aegean Sea. And as they're traveling east to west, it would make a lot more sense for them to go to Ephesus first. But Ephesus is in the province of Asia, and as we just read, the Holy Spirit has prohibited them, forbidden them from going into Asia. Now, side note, for us in the Harrisburg region, this is also a great place if you want to really take the Bible out of context and talk about the West Shore versus the East Shore and how you're, you know, you're forbidden from going to the East Shore. The Holy Spirit said you couldn't go there. You could take this verse way out of context and do that. So feel free to you know, use that however you'd like. Eventually, though, we'll see as we pick up this story in the fall, they do get to Ephesus. They do get there. A number of early church leaders will spend substantial time in Ephesus. But as much sense as this original plan made, it was not the direction of the Spirit. The Spirit was saying, not there and not there, but here, Macedonia. 
Now, how did the Holy Spirit provide this direction? The Macedonian call came through a vision, through a vision. One way the Holy Spirit leads is through visions and dreams. Now, we in the, in the West, we tend to not see this, or some of us just discount this completely, like it doesn't happen anymore today. But the testimony of the, the global church and some of the Western church and the United States church is that this is how God still, one of the ways the Holy Spirit can still provide direction. As the prophet Joel wrote and as Peter quoted in his Pentecost sermon, in the last days it shall be, and we are in these last days between Jesus' ascension and his second coming, in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. So that's one way. Other than that, though, we are not given details. So how did the Holy Spirit forbid these men from speaking in Asia? Was it prophecy? Was it an inward prompting? Was it external circumstances? Like they just, they tried, but they just could not get into Asia. Scholars aren't exactly sure what to make of Luke's reference because he has two different references in verses six and seven. In verse six, he says, the Holy Spirit. In verse seven, he says, the Spirit of Jesus. And so some scholars think the Spirit of Jesus there in verse seven might be a hint that that direction was given through prophecy, through a prophetic word. But notice in all of this, there's a community being led together. There's a community being led together. It's not just about Paul and how the Spirit leads him. It's how the Spirit is leading them. And eventually, the them includes Luke, the author of the book of Acts. I don't know if you saw that, if you picked up on it as we read, but in Troas, just before the Spirit calls them to Macedonia, Luke actually becomes the fourth member of this team. And his writing there switches from they to we. It says, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding God had called us to preach to them. So the Holy Spirit provides direction through a combination of things. John Stott put it this way. Usually God's guidance is not negative only, but positive. So some doors close and some open. Not circumstantial only, but rational that we actually think about our situation, and not personal only, but also corporate. And I'll sum all of that up with the phrase active dependence. Active dependence. Being directed by the Spirit requires dependence, first and foremost. Recognizing that, that you and I have a need to be led and having a desire to be led, not wanting to take a single step apart from God saying, yes, that is the way to go, and we need you to show us the way, God. But not passive in that. Patient, for sure, waiting, yes, but actively paying attention to what God is doing around us in our circumstances, actively thinking, actively seeking wisdom from a multitude of, of counselors. God told me to fill in the blank, or the Holy Spirit directed me to fill in the blank. You heard these statements before, maybe you've made those statements before. Over the centuries, how many people have abused phrases like that? Way too many to count. Saying those words and then just expecting everybody to just 
kind of go along with it. How do you argue with that when someone says, God told me to do this? It's like, well, I don't really know where that leaves us in conversation then. In every generation, those words have been uttered from both faithful lips, people truly following the direction of the Spirit, and spiritually abusive and manipulative lips. So be appropriately cautious. Consider circumstances. Don't don't check your brain at the door when you're seeking direction from the Holy Spirit. And by all means, involve and submit your promptings, your sense of calling to other godly, trustworthy people. But what I would also say to you this morning is for all the abuses, don't attempt an end around the Spirit of God. Don't neglect the gift of the Spirit of God. Desire to be led by Him, not solely by strategy or by rational thought or by circumstance. Pursue active dependence in order to follow the Spirit's direction. And on Pentecost in particular, we get to celebrate today. This is how God has advanced his mission in the world, including the way it has reached us. In more recent centuries, David Livingston was trying to go to China, but the Spirit directed him to Africa. William Carey was planning to go to Polynesia in the South Seas. The Spirit directed him to India instead. And there are amazing heritages of faith that flow from the Spirit's direction in those two cases. Adoniram Judson went to India but the Spirit directed him then to Burma, Myanmar, as we know it now. But long before these three men of European descent were directed by the Spirit, the gospel of Jesus Christ first landed on European soil. Macedonia is the first place on European soil that the gospel arrives. When the Holy Spirit directed four Middle Eastern men, two Jews, a Gentile, and a biracial man, to Macedonia. So having begun by the Spirit, let us continue to keep in step with the Spirit. Second, discernment. Discernment. Not just where to go in direction, but what to do in varied circumstances. There's a fascinating case study in Acts chapter 16. At the beginning of the chapter, Paul circumcises Timothy. So having established that circumcision is not required for salvation, he then relatively quickly lays down that right, gives up that freedom for Timothy. At the end of the chapter, though, Paul insists on his rights, specifically his rights as a citizen of the Roman Empire. After he's beaten and imprisoned, the magistrates there in the city of Philippi decide to let him and Silas go. They they come to him, they send people to him, say, okay, you guys can leave, you can leave in peace. And Paul says, nope. You guys beat and humiliated us publicly. You violated our rights as Roman citizens. We are not leaving quietly. You tell those magistrates to come and let us out themselves. We'll wait. When do you insist on your own rights and when do you lay them down? And in some ways, this is the same question that was prompted by Acts chapter 15 last week. When do we fight to defend the gospel And when do we defer to other people out of love? We can, we should learn a lot of principles from studying these chapters in Acts. At the end of the day, however, this will always require discernment from the Holy Spirit. This will always require keeping in step with the Spirit. So breaking this down a little bit more, as we read, Timothy's mother is Jewish. His father is a Greek Gentile. So legally, because you would get your your family heritage from your mother's line, he was a Jewish man. 
But because he was uncircumcised, he would have been considered an apostate Jew. By any other Jewish person, he'd be considered apostate. He's not in Jerusalem or Judea, the place where the, the, mo- the most concentration of Jewish men and women are. But there are Jewish people in the cities that he's going to be traveling to. So this is a complicated situation. We know what they chose to do, and so we're like, well, yeah, it makes sense. It was obvious that they had to make that call. Think about what it would have been like, though, in the moment that they were trying to understand what to do here. You could make a rational case for either circumcising or not circumcising Timothy. Silas is part of this team. He's right there with them. And as we read, he's delivering the Jerusalem council's decision. He's telling them, as the Jerusalem council decided, circumcision is not required to experience salvation. Only faith is. And so Timothy could become this traveling poster boy for that. They could go to all these towns and say, circumcision is not required. Meet my friend Timothy. He's a Christian too. He's a Christian too. It would probably encourage a ton of Gentiles if they chose to not circumcise Timothy. But circumcising him demonstrates sensitivity and care for the conscience of the Jewish people that were going to be in those cities. Now, in Philippi, people knew that his father was a Greek Gentile. I'm not sure how they would have known if Timothy was circumcised or not in any other city. I've always kind of wondered that. Like, who's checking these things? Who's checking? We, we have a hard time in different seasons recruiting enough volunteers for like Liberty Kids and Liberty Nursery. But if like this is part of the role for like an usher in the synagogue, ain't nobody signing up for that. Nobody wants that job. But it would have been a barrier to the gospel for anyone with a Jewish background. And so though Paul just fought really hard to separate circumcision from salvation, he now encourages circumcision for the sake of the salvation of many others. End of the chapter, in the Philippian jail, however, Paul insists upon his rights as a Roman citizen. Rather than leaving quietly and peaceably, he makes a scene. Now why not just absorb the insult? Why not forgive and be at peace in spite of the wrong he suffered. Paul certainly does that in a number of other instances in his life and ministry. So why not here? This could be a moment to allow the magistrates of Philippi to taste the grace and the mercy of God. They deserve humiliation for the error of their ways, for treating a Roman citizen that way. But Paul could say, hey, in love, I'm going to cover over that. I'm going to cover over it. But where would that leave this fledgling church in Philippi. Paul and Silas were publicly imprisoned, publicly beaten, because they were accused, verse 20 and 21, of disturbing the city and advocating customs that are unlawful for Romans to accept or practice. In other words, the charge on them is, these men are starting a cult, and any honorable Roman will not believe what they're saying. If that's the last public statement about Jesus and about Christianity in Philippi, it's going to leave the church there in danger. It potentially subjects Lydia and now the Philippian jailer who's just become a follower of Jesus and whoever else to the same suspicion, the same treatment. This accusation that Christianity is a cult that incites riots, that's slanderous, number one, it's not true, but also it's an unnecessary obstacle to the gospel and to this church that's just getting off the ground in this city. 
So even though it would be an opportunity and maybe even a really beautiful opportunity to show mercy to the magistrates, this is instead a moment for Paul and Silas to insist on their rights, to insist that just as their punishment was public, their exoneration must be public for the sake of the church. Now, again, in all of this, some principles emerge. Is the gospel at stake in these decisions, these tough decisions that we have to make? Is the gospel at stake? If so, insist on it, defend it. Or even if the gospel itself is not at stake, what is going to be the most fruitful in advancing the gospel? That's, that's a question we add to our criteria of thinking through hard decisions. What's going to be the most fruitful in advancing the gospel? But even determining the answers to those questions requires discernment from the Spirit. And so thankfully, Jesus promised in John chapter 16, when the Spirit of truth comes, and at Pentecost he came, when the Spirit comes, he will guide you into all the truth. That's not simply doctrinal truth, but it's the truth rightly applied. It's knowing whether to insist on Timothy's freedom or to insist Timothy lay his freedom down. It's knowing whether to cover over an offense from the magistrates or to insist on a public apology. The Holy Spirit also, when we face decisions like this, exposes and helps us discern our real motives. The fruit of the Spirit, Paul goes on to write in Galatians 5, is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When you're wrestling with a decision like the apostles are in Acts 16, ask yourself if those things are present, if those things are actually driving your decisions. Are you insisting on your rights, for example, because of that, out of love, out of joy, out of peace? Or are you insisting on your rights out of enmity, Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. Those are actually what Paul calls the works of the flesh, and he sets them up in Galatians chapter 5 as the exact opposite, the juxtaposition of the fruit of the Spirit. There's the fruit of the Spirit, and there's the works of the flesh. And the Holy Spirit will never lead you to discern something that is opposed to the fruit of the Spirit. This one Spirit one spirit. The Holy Spirit will never lead you and I to discern something that is opposed to the fruit of the Spirit. So from our motives to the difficult decisions we have to make, all the way through, keep in step with the Spirit. Third, design. Design. Not just direction, not just where we go, not just discernment what we do, but what is the Spirit doing? What is the Spirit doing? See, far more than a description of Paul's second missionary journey, Acts 16 showcases the providence and the design of God. Acts is a book not so much about the apostles as it is about the Spirit of God at work through the apostles advancing Jesus' mission in the world. And this chapter helps us see how the Spirit is moving to do just that. So Timothy, this figure who becomes so pivotal in the future work of the gospel, joins this team, joins Paul, only when Paul chooses to go back to Lystra, the place that he almost got stoned to death. The Spirit guided. The Spirit had that in mind. Then they're directed to Troas. They're forbidden from going other places. They land in Troas, where Luke enters the picture. 
So the reason that we have this book at all, the reason that today you and I can read and consider and study these words is because 2,000 years ago, the Holy Spirit directed Paul and Silas and Timothy to Troas and brought Luke onto their team. And then as this team arrives in Macedonia, in Philippi specifically, we watch the Spirit work far beyond anything that mere strategy could ever have accomplished. There's no synagogue in Philippi. Normally, that's where Paul would would go when he would begin a work in a new city. He would go first to the synagogue. But evidently, there are very few Jewish people, or at least Jewish men, in Philippi. A synagogue required a quorum of 10 men, 10 Jewish men. So it would seem that there are fewer than that in Philippi at this particular moment. There is, however, a place about a mile outside the city near the river. And a number of God-fearing women have gathered there on the Sabbath. One of them is Lydia, a wealthy businesswoman. And, Paul proclaim, and as Paul proclaims Jesus, the Spirit opens her heart and she believes. And she's baptized along with her household. And then she prevails upon this team of missionaries to come and stay with her at her house. Most scholars believe that her house became the, the first church in Philippi. The first location the church gathered was Lydia's house. But for at least some period of time, this riverside spot outside the city remains a place of prayer for them. And so Paul and the other members of this team, they keep returning there. And on one such occasion, they are met by this demon-oppressed slave girl. And she starts following them. And she starts crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Which is true. Which is true, but it's also a mockery. It's also a mockery. Uh, we, saw that, we see this play out with Jesus in his ministry in the Gospels. And Paul, like Jesus, does not want the demons being the one to identify him publicly. He wants to be the one to say, here's who I am and here's what I've come to do. He doesn't want that coming out of the mouths of, of demons. And so, getting agitated after a couple days of this, Paul commands the demon to come out in Jesus' name. And what we see there is that in showdowns of spiritual power, the Holy Spirit always wins. Immediately, immediately, the demon comes out. And immediately, this slave girl's owners recognize the source of income is gone. It's actually kind of funny. In the original language of the New Testament, the word is the same. Paul exercised the demon and he exercised their income. That's how it's written in the original language. He, he got rid of both of them in one, in one shot. And so, as you might imagine, they're angry about that. They drag Paul and Silas into the marketplace and before the local magistrates. And that is what leads to the salvation of the Philippian jailer. If they hadn't been thrown in prison, they wouldn't have been singing at midnight the doors wouldn't have opened and the bonds unfastened. The jailer would have, wouldn't have been about to take his own life. He never would have asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? How do you plan for this? How do you plan for the events of Acts 16? You don't. You can't. No, the Holy Spirit was about to bring Lydia and this enslaved girl and this Philippian jail into the family of God the Father. This was to be the day. This was to be the hour of their salvation. The grace of God, the joy of Jesus was coming to them and to their households. And there could not have been a more disparate group of people. A wealthy immigrant businesswoman 
a poor, exploited, enslaved girl, and a middle-class jailer, almost certainly a veteran of the Roman army. For centuries, the head of many Jewish households would pray each day, thank you, God, that I am not a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. And here in a matter of a few days in Philippi, someone from each of those groups enters into the kingdom of God, enters into God's family, and more than that, into the same church. And I imagine them all at some point gathering together around the table in Lydia's house. Why? Why? Because there is therefore now no Jew or Gentile, no slave or free, no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But in order to bring that about, the Spirit would prohibit Paul from going anywhere but Macedonia. He would lead Paul to a riverside place of prayer. He would lead Paul to an encounter with this enslaved girl and then into the stocks of the inner prison to make that all happen. We cannot possibly design that, but the Spirit of God did and does and does. And so what we can do is to seek to be attentive to what the Spirit of God is doing and then to join him there. Jesus, when he commissioned his followers at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, go therefore and make disciples. The word go means as you go, along the way. Acts 16 is what that looks like in real life. Imagine if Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke had this rigid insistence on their own plans, or they just like fell apart when something changed and went differently than they expected. What if they quit because they couldn't go to Ephesus? What if they quit because there wasn't a synagogue in Philippi? Like, well, we can't start here. Let's go to another city. What if they just ignored this enslaved girl? Or what if rather than singing and praying in prison, They just sat there at midnight moping and begrudging their circumstances, longing for the moment they could get back to, quote, doing ministry. No, these moments, in these moments, they were doing ministry. They remained attentive to what the Spirit of God was doing. These moments became the fruitful moments. They're the ones that are recorded and that we're reading 2,000 years later because it always and only is the Spirit's design and not ours. Friends, where is the Spirit of God at work in you and around you today? Right now. Not after you take some time to go you know, plan and think about the ways that you're going to be more faithful to Jesus. That's great. You can, there's nothing wrong with thinking and planning and having a strategy for some of these things. But every single day, you and I are going. Every single day, we are along the way. Encountering, encountering wealthy religious business people like Lydia, poor, exploited, marginalized people like this slave girl, dutiful, honorable, hardworking, unchurched people like this Philippian jailer. And you will never know if today is the day of their salvation unless you keep your eyes open, unless you keep in step with the Spirit of God. God knows the experience of planting this church has gone very differently than what I expected. At this point, I don't even really remember what I was expecting. Something naive and different than what it actually played out. But I will tell you this, last week, 
when I got to watch the Rocky family dancing together at Trevor's wedding. And when I got to hear Lois read scripture at her brother's funeral, or Greg Lowe read Chuck's snapshot at his funeral, or when I get to stand up here and be part of baptizing or dedicating children like we're going to get to do some next week, or when we baptized Dana or Arnie and Emily or Kelsey Lee or Tate, when we fight for marriages and we see the grace of God come to bear in horrible circumstances, when we fight for faith so that someone can say, I believe, help my unbelief. When we get to be part of planting churches, whether by sending our money or our people or both, this is so much better than anything I could plan for. This is so much better than that. And I'm just scratching the surface of all that we could take time, and I hope we do take time, maybe in your Bible study groups or find a way to do this with one another, to celebrate what God the Spirit has done and is doing in our midst. Like the jailer's household, let us rejoice, not because of our plans, but because of the Spirit's design. Men and women, by faith in the finished work of Jesus, you have been given the very Spirit of God. You have been given the very Spirit of God. Having begun by the Spirit, continue with the Spirit. Because you live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, our Father, who to an expectant and united church granted at Pentecost the gift of your Holy Spirit, you have wonderfully brought into one fold we who now worship together here. Grant, we pray, the help of that same Spirit in all of our life and worship that we may expect great things from you, attempt great things for you, and being one in you, show to the world that you have sent Jesus our Lord. It is him to whom with you and the Holy Spirit belong all honor and glory. And we praise you for the gift of sending your spirit and for the spirit's presence in us this morning. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.